Well, let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, oh Lord, grateful to be able to gather virtually again this morning, and God, to be reminded that you are God, and God alone, you are high above it all, and you are worthy of our praise. We pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. God, would you make our hearts soft and submissive? Would you make us now, Lord, ready and tuned to your word and your will for our lives? God, we pray that you would use your word this morning to teach us, to train us in godliness and righteousness, and to make us look like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back together again this morning, and I want you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ruth again as we continue to uh, travel through this book of Ruth and to be encouraged by this story. I'm reminded of how fitting this book is for our current circumstances. Uh, light in the darkness has been our theme, and um, it's been a fitting theme, and we're praying that God is going to continue to expose us to the light of His Word this morning. I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin our time together. Um, are you known as someone in life who just does the bare minimum? A person who just kind of does their duty, uh, no more or no less. They do what they're asked, do what they're told, but they don't really go above and beyond. Or are you known as someone who does just that? They, they go above and beyond what's normal or expected. I want you to think for a minute about the different spheres of your life. Are you known as someone who does the bare minimum or goes above and beyond um, in the workplace? Maybe as an employer or an employee. How about in your relationships, maybe with your spouse? Are you just kind of mailing it in, doing what you think you're supposed to be doing and content with just doing the bare minimum? Or are you excelling and exceedingly going above and beyond what may be normal and expected in our culture? What about in your friendships? Are you known as a person who goes above and beyond? Let me ask you this. What about in your relationship with Jesus Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a person who is simply doing what you think you're supposed to do, just kind of squeaking by, you know, right on that line of, I think this is it, or are you striving to be a person who does above and beyond what's expected of you and what's normal? I'm reminded that as Christians, we have all received grace from God. Grace is often defined as undeserved or unmerited favor. It's something certainly that is undeserved, but we need to be reminded often that when it comes to God's grace, yes, it's undeserved, but we need to be reminded that God goes above and beyond. The Word of God tells us that He lavishes His grace upon us. I mean, He pours it out in abundance. He heaps it upon us so much further beyond what is normal and expected, especially from a human perspective. And as we consider our role as followers of Jesus Christ, let me remind you that we are called to be like our God. We are called to embrace what God is like and to embody what God is like. The word favor is used repeatedly in the book of Ruth. We've seen that already in the first chapter. And the word favor actually conveys this idea of kindness or grace that is beyond what is due or usual. And I think that aptly describes what we mean when we say that God has extended to us amazing grace. It is truly above and beyond what we deserve. It's above and beyond what is normal and, and expected. But let me ask you this morning, as you consider God's amazing grace towards you, is amazing grace something that aptly describes you? I trust that as we look at God's Word this morning, we're not only going to see God's amazing grace on full display, we're going to be reminded that this is something we're called to embrace and embody in our lives too. I want to read for us from Ruth chapter 2, and I want you to see, even in a cursory reading, how we see God's amazing grace on display. It begins like this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. 
And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaths after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean into another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." Such a beautiful picture of amazing grace that goes above and beyond. And I want to highlight to you three ways in which we see God's amazing grace on display in this story. Ways that we can both embrace and embody the grace of God in our own lives. First, notice this. We see God's amazing grace on display in His absolute control. This is truly amazing grace, especially when life seems so dark and it feels like there's no light to be seen. To know that God is in absolute control is truly a gift of God's grace. You'll notice in verse 2 here, we're reminded that Naomi and Ruth have rolled back into town. They had left Bethlehem 10 years earlier, at least Naomi had, and now they're returning and we're reminded they they left full, but they're returning empty. They're sensing and feeling that darkness. They're wondering what's next. They've been in the storm and they're hoping to pass through and put their feet on solid ground. We know from the context here in chapter 1 that the Lord had visited His people. And just as the harvest was beginning, again, the, the house of bread, Bethlehem, is being restocked by God. And so here they've arrived right at the beginning of the harvest season. And I just want to draw your attention all the way back to chapter 1 in verse 8 and 9 so we get a bigger picture of what God is doing here. All the way back there, remember, when life was falling apart, Ruth had spoken to both Orpah and, and, excuse me, Naomi had spoken to both Ruth and Orpah and had actually offered a kind of prayer to God for them. She said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to her mother's house. Now, we know Orpah decided to do that, but Ruth decided to cling to to Naomi, and she's now with her back in Israel. And listen to this prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. You say, why am I drawing your attention to this prayer? because it's instrumental in understanding the unfolding plan of God. You see, God, unbeknownst to Naomi, is going to begin to answer that very prayer. At the time that she prayed it, she had no idea if God would answer this prayer or how God would answer this prayer, but the author of the book of Ruth knows exactly what God has decided to do, and he's wanting to put it on full display. And so right here in verse 1, the narrator actually introduces us to a character that we're about to meet. You'll notice in verse 1, he's a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. He is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, and his name is Boaz. Why are we being introduced to him right now? I think that's a fair question. 
You see, if the author tells you something that you could learn from the very story itself, he's actually indicating that it's something we need to pay special attention to. He didn't need to tell us that we're going to be introduced to Boaz. He could have just simply done it. But here he's highlighting that this figure is going to be a central figure in this story. That God is going to be providentially using this man to accomplish his good purposes. It's his way of highlighting or underlining the significance of what's about to take place. So why is he highlighting this would be the natural question. Well, he wants us to pay attention to how this piece of information is going to prove significant, again, in God's sovereign providence. In other words, he wants us to see in this story God's amazing grace in his absolute control over all the events that are taking place. Keep your eyes on Boaz, the author is saying. He may just be the unexpected answer to Naomi's prayer. This is a great reminder, by the way, that God hears our prayers in the darkness of our lives. And though we may not see the answers right away, though we may not know how God is going to answer those prayers, He hears our prayers, He cares about His children, and God is faithful to do all that He promises to do. Here we see, as the New Testament reminds us, that He is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. That is certainly the truth for Ruth and Naomi. It's interesting, in biblical narrative, the writers are often doing something fascinating to help us gain some perspective. It's kind of like a, a split screen in a movie. If you ever watched a movie and the director puts split screens on there, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to show you the same event from two different perspectives. In a sense, that's what the, the, the biblical author is doing here. He's giving us a split screen of this entire story, and he wants us to see uh, the perspective of Ruth and Naomi, but at the same time, he wants us to pay attention to the perspective of God, because those two perspectives can be radically different. The reason that we need to see this is because the author is wanting to give us important insight into the nature of God's working. It is the intent of the author to remind us of the sovereignty of God over this story and over every area of our lives. We're actually being taught here to read the narrative from these two different perspectives, the human perspective and the divine perspective, because this is how we're supposed to look at our lives. We're supposed to be reminded that we have our perspective, but that perspective is so limited. It's so narrow because we don't see the begin from, be, beginning from the end. But God's perspective is so broad. It's all-encompassing. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning and the end because he's planned it out and he is executing it with perfection. So often we get trapped in the human perspective especially in the darkness of our lives, in the, the tragedies, in the pain, in the, the difficult circumstances we encounter. We all have the propensity to do this. We all of a sudden get kind of roped into our own situation and we forget, we forget that there's a different perspective. We forget that there's a divine perspective. And so we need to be pulled out of our own perspective and we need to be seeing that God is the one who's ultimately in absolute control of our lives. There's some indicators that we've lost perspective of, of God's absolute control in our lives. I want you to think of your life for a minute, kind of like the dashboard in a car. Every once in a while, if, if your car is like mine, maybe more often than not, uh, the indicator lights on the dashboard pop on. And maybe there's a, a check engine light, or there's an oil light that's popped on, or there's a, a washer fluid or a transmission light that pops on on the dashboard. Those are indicators that tell us that there's something potentially wrong, and if we don't get it fixed, we're headed down a path towards disaster. We could blow up the engine if we don't care for it properly and pay attention to the indicator lights. You see, God uh, in our life will oftentimes give us these, these indicator lights so that we can pay attention to some of the problems in our life and be reminded that we need a, a solution. We need to get something fixed. And I want to show you give you just a couple ways in which we um, see these indicators, indicators that we've lost sight of God's absolute control. And here they are right here, God's absolute control. If I've, if I've been characterized by these four things, first, worriedness. That's often a sign that I've lost sight of God's absolute control. Worriedness can be described like this, believing God won't get it right. 
I, I, by the way, I'm very much aware that the word worriness sounds very strange and maybe it's not even a real word, but that's okay. We're going to go with it for today. So embrace it and go with it and just get the sense of what I'm trying to communicate to you. Worriness is believing that God won't get it right. And so we're filled with fear and anxiety. We don't trust that God is ultimately in control or that God knows what he's doing. And that's often, if you're a chronic warrior, if you suffer with chronic anxiety, it's oftentimes an indication, listen, that you've lost sight of God's absolute control in your life and over that particular situation you're experiencing. Let me give you another one, bitterness. Bitterness is often an indicator. You say, what do you mean? Well, listen, bitterness is believing God got it wrong. It's believing that God has got it wrong, that, that his control over the universe isn't good. That God could somehow mess things up, which would, again would indicate that he doesn't actually have control. Bitterness can often expose our view of God and, and a weak understanding of God's sovereignty and providence in our lives. Let me give you another one, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness exposes a lot of things in our spiritual lives, but one of the things prayerlessness is, is this. It's believing God won't help or believing I don't need God's help. But oftentimes, when we are caught up in our situation, in, in the difficulties of our life, and we lose sight of God's perspective, we'll oftentimes believe that simply God won't help. There's no point in praying. And I just think that's a, a great indicator that, hey, maybe, maybe we need to reorient our focus. Let me give you one final one, hopelessness. And hopelessness can be described like this. It's believing that God won't help. And that your life is filled with despair and discouragement and you've moved to a place, not simply that God, God won't help or doesn't want to help, but God can't help. That my situation is beyond God's control. There's nothing that could redeem this. Maybe you look at your own life and you believe that this, this is, I, I'm, I'm not redeemable. I, I am beyond all hope. And we need to be reminded that God is sovereign over our lives. And when we see these indicator lights pop up on our dashboard, the goal is not simply to ignore them. It's not to simply try to remove the light bulb and pretend like the problem doesn't exist. We need to take it in for a tune-up, a checkup, and we need to get an actual expert opinion on what's going on so that we can apply the proper solution. And here the proper solution is reorienting our perspective and understanding that God is truly in absolute control. In order to move forward, with resolve and trust in the Lord, we need to believe that God is in absolute control. And that's what Ruth does in this situation. She's not crippled by these things. In fact, she takes the, the bull by the horns and she begins to move forward in faith. And look at what it says right there in verses 2 and 3. It says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Like That's such an incredible statement of faith and trust in the Lord. She's going to go out, she's going to step out in faith, and she's trusting that God is going to provide, that she'll find favor in someone's eyes. In contrast that with Naomi, who, who seems at this point to be stuck in her self-pity, wallowing still in her sorrow. And here is Ruth, this young Moabite, this foreigner. She's in a foreign territory. She knows nobody, and yet she's trusting that the Lord is going to provide. Naomi says to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out, and she went, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. So here she is, she's gleaning in the field, she's doing whatever she can to try and, and, and get some kind of sustenance, as, as little as it may be, something to provide for her and her mother-in-law. They have to survive. She knows that. She doesn't seem at this point worried, notice that. She doesn't seem bitter because of life's circumstances. She doesn't seem hopeless. She doesn't seem prayerless. In fact, just the opposite. She demonstrates this, demonstrates this beautiful trust in God. You know, trust in God is often expressed in simply putting one foot in front of the other, even though we don't know what's there. Believing that God is who he says he is, that he will be faithful. And oftentimes, when we least expect it, God will provide in unexpected ways. And look what happens in verse 3. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. 
who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. I mean, you need to see what the author is doing here. I mean, it just so happened that she stumbles into the field of Boaz. She has no idea at this point who Boaz is. It seems like Naomi has even forgotten about Boaz. She's just simply going out to look for food, to look for work, and she walks into a field of Elimelech, her father-in-law's relative. Now, in the Hebrew, the, the way this is phrased is fascinating. It's kind of literally phrased like this. She chanced upon chance, or the happenstance that happened to her. It, it's a fascinating way to describe the sovereignty of God here. The author of Ruth, by the way, doesn't believe in dumb luck, doesn't believe in coincidences. You see, this is a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of comment to point us towards the sovereignty of God. This was no accident. This is no mere coincidence. This is the providence of God working itself out in the life of the children of God. There are many things in our lives that just seem to happen. But I want to remind you as we look at this account here, nothing in your life happens by chance. The purposes of God often remain hidden to us. That's what we see in this story. But God's fingerprints are all over this story and ours. We just need eyes to see and hearts to believe. And this is why it's so vital to familiarize yourself with Scripture. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the reasons you need to immerse yourself in the Word of God is because you need to see the sovereignty of God on every page of the Bible. Every time we look at the Word of God, we're reminded that God is the God of history. God is the God of the universe. God is the God who's in absolute control of everything and everyone. And that's critical because in the darkest moments of your life, you will be tempted to believe that God is not sovereign, that God is not in control, that God doesn't know what he's doing. And even when it doesn't make sense, your heart can be refreshed by the truths of God's word. He is absolutely in control. I love what Isaiah 50 verse 10 says. It says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. How relevant for this passage, for this book, for this theme. Who has no light. Listen, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. I mean, that's just it right there. But, but you can't do that if you don't believe that God is worthy to be trusted, if you don't believe that God is actually in control. But when you believe it to the depths of your soul, you can walk in faith like Ruth does here. I love it. We see the human perspective and the divine perspective. And we need to be reminded that God didn't just write the script. He's the director and the producer. The Lord's plan to display his amazing grace to Ruth and Naomi was part, by the way, of, of his even greater plan for lavishing his amazing grace upon men and women of future generations through the Lord Jesus Christ. No part of his meticulous plan was left to chance. Nothing the Lord ever does is down to luck. He is in absolute control and directing the affairs of the universe according to his sovereign will and his good providence. It was the Lord, without her even knowing it, who caused Ruth to pick Boaz's field in which to seek favor in the eyes of someone. How amazing is God's grace. Secondly, God's amazing grace is on display in his astonishing compassion. Now we get a closer look at Boaz. He becomes a key figure in the story. And what I want you to notice is that Boaz is the channel through which God shows these women his astonishing compassion. Remember, he is a relative Naomi. It's clear here um, in this story that he is a man of great wealth and great influence. He is a landowner. He has servants. He has an abundance. In other words, he has the ability to meet their needs. There's so much here, by the way, that is admirable in both Ruth and Boaz. They both serve 
for us as examples of faithfulness, of loyalty, of all kinds of things. And the author, though, is wanting us to pay particular attention to Boaz. I want you to see this first. He was godly. It says this, and behold, again, shockingly, at this moment, the same moment that Ruth has picked, the same day that Ruth has picked this field, all of a sudden Boaz returns from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I love that. Right out the gates, what we see in Boaz is that he is a godly man. He sees his workers and he heaps on them, not praise, not encouragement for how good they're doing. He simply gives this beautiful statement, the Lord be with you. You see, I think this reflects the heart of Boaz for the people around him. He longs for people to know the presence of God. I don't think this is just simply a casual greeting. I think this is a reflection of his heart of compassion for people. And you'll notice that it's reciprocated. His employees, the people who serve him and work for him, they respond by saying, the Lord bless you. They've experienced his kindness and his compassion, and they long for the Lord to bless him in return. It's such a a beautiful statement, a beautiful heart that's reflected here. To refer to the Lord was the normal thing for Boaz to do. With Boaz, by the way, there is no gap between the spiritual and the material, the the secular and the sacred. He, He didn't compartmentalize his life into areas where he devoted himself to God and areas where he didn't. This was a man who put the Lord first in every area of his life. It's interesting that His relative, Elimelech, think about this, 10 years ago had left the land. But what we know is that Boaz clearly stayed. He's he's a godly man. He clearly trusted in the promises of God. He held fast to the God of Israel. I wonder if Boaz was one of those who had called out to the Lord, again, during the time of Judges, called out in repentance, called out, cried out, pleading with God to rescue his people. What seems obvious here is that his love for God, again, infiltrated every single area of his life. What a powerful reminder that we cannot and we must not compartmentalize our faith. Our worship of God should be just as evident on Sunday as it is on Monday through Saturday. In our gathering together one day again at church and our scattering again one day into the world around us. You see, that's what true godliness is. It's a holy consistency that characterizes our lives. And true godliness embodies the heart of God, a heart of compassion. It's manifested in in love for God and in love for neighbor. This is what it means to fulfill the law. We know this from the New Testament. To love our neighbor and to love God is the fulfillment of the law. And what's interesting here is we see next, not only is he godly, we see that manifested in that he was obedient to the law of God. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? He's curious where she came from. Is this somebody else's servant? Is this someone's wife? Verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaths after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. He sees someone new and so he calls out to the field supervisor and he inquires about her. She tells him who she is and what she's asked to do. She's asked to come and glean in the fields to follow the workers and to simply pick up the scraps, so to speak. Now, it seems that Ruth knows something potentially about the law of God. But remember, this is the time during the judges. 
And at this point in time, we never know who's actually following the law of God or who cares about the law of God. But what we know is that Boaz appears to be a man who loves the law of God. He knows the law of God and he is living out the law of God. You see, God had made a law about gleaning in the Old Testament. It was an expression of his love and his concern for the poor, for the stranger, for the marginalized and for the needy. It's a concern that he commanded his people to share. You see, his people were to be an extension, an expression of his heart of compassion. In fact, look at what Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10 say. It says, when you reap your harvest, the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, isn't it interesting as you look at that verse right there? That's Ruth, isn't it? That's Ruth right there. She is a sojourner. She has come, uh, left her home and come into another land. She is fatherless. She has left her father and her mother. And right now she simply lives with her mother-in-law. She's a widow. I just, I, I love how we see right now Boaz so faithfully following the law of God. God has said, leave a border around the edges of your field so that the poor can come and, and glean, the needy, those who are, who are lacking and are, are, are in want, that they can come and you can serve them and meet their needs. For I am the Lord your God. Remember what it said in Leviticus 19. Again, you know why God says that? He's saying that because, because this is who I am. And I want you to be an expression of who I am. This is my heart for my people. This is the heart of Father that is overflowing with compassion. Astonishing compassion. Grace and graciousness were written into the commandments that he had given to his people. Boaz cares about the law and has himself embodied the heart of God that is filled with this same compassion. Let me just quickly add or remind you that Ruth has also, even as a new convert, expressed this same compassion for her mother-in-law. She's the one out in the field. She's the one who's left uh, the, the comfort of a home and she's gone out into the sun and she has been working from the moment she got there until this very second, only with a short break. She is diligent. She is working her tail off. You say, why is she doing this? Because she has such love and compassion for Naomi. She, as a new convert, is embodying the very heart of God, whether she even realizes it or not. She's not stopped working from this moment. You know, oftentimes, showing this kind of compassion is costly. It's self-giving and it's sacrificial. It certainly cost Boaz to not reap the entire harvest for himself. God knew it was costly for people to give away a part of their, a portion of their field. It was certainly costly in terms of time and energy for Ruth as she gleans whatever she can, picking up the scraps so that her and her mother-in-law can survive. But I want you to see that this kind of costliness to compassion is really at the heart of God for his children. He loves to lavish grace upon us. And he has done so most profoundly and clearly in the cross, where he has shown us incredible, astonishing compassion. Think about this. At the cross, God shows compassion, astonishing compassion for the poor and the needy. Those who look at their sin and they realize that they're, they're hopeless and they're helpless. They cannot fix themselves, that, that they can do nothing to restore themselves back to a right relationship with their father who realize that they deserve nothing except punishment and judgment for their sin. And yet God looks upon the poor and needy, those who are hopeless and helpless, and God shows this astonishing compassion that he would come and give with the cost of his own life, paying for our sin, removing the penalty of death and judgment, and giving to us in abundance eternal life. We need to be reminded, not just from Ruth and Boaz, but as we look at the gospel, that God is not stingy when it comes to grace. 
Grace is costly, but God is not stingy. In fact, you can think of it like this. His grace is not cheap, but he is not cheap with his grace. He lavishes it upon us. And you know, it's in experiencing the heart of God towards us that we can actually come to embody the heart of God towards others. We will often experience God's compassion also, let me just add this, through others. And we will often be the instruments of God's compassion for others. I had a conversation with someone in our church family yesterday, a member in our church, and it was just such a sweet conversation getting caught up on how he and his family were doing and how they were surviving through this pandemic and all of the self-isolation. Just a, a really sweet conversation. But near the end of the conversation, he just stopped and he just said, can I just ask you something? How, how is everybody else in the church family doing? Are there any needs that need to be met? Are people feeling like they're being cared for? You just, I just have a real heart for the people in our church and, and the people who are a part of our family. I just, I just, I, I, I'm just, I hope that they're being cared for and I want to see if there's anything I can do to care for them. I just, I was so blessed by that. I just, I just said, man, well, that's so, brother, that's so encouraging. What you just did there was you just expressed the heart of God for his children. And that's, that's what we ought to be as the people of God. That ought to be our heart. We ought to be so uh, uh, blessed by God's astounding, amazing compassion for us that we want to show that compassion toward others. We need to cultivate a heart of compassion. And the greatest way we do that, the easiest way to do that, is to keep running back to the Word of God and be gazing upon, staring intently at God's heart of compassion for sinners. Run to the Word of God to know, to love, and to obey. Read God's Word to see and embody the heart of God. We need to be regularly reminded of His heart of compassion towards others and his heart of compassion towards us. Finally, we see God's amazing grace on display in his astounding care. You see, true compassion is not simply seen in the comprehension of the mind, nor simply in the disposition of the heart, but ultimately in the action of the hands. It's seen, in other words, in practical care, And we see that being fleshed out in this story. He's got this incredible heart of compassion showing the heart of God. But what we see is so sweet. He says in verse 7, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. This is what Ruth has said. So she came and she's continued to work just a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I mean, can, can you just see here the practical care he's demonstrating? He's not just saying, oh, I, I hope for the best for you. Like, I, man, I'll, I'll pray for you. I really hope things turn out. No, he, he says, let me help you. Let me practically meet your needs. Let me provide for you and protect you. You see, that is ultimately the expression of the heart of compassion. It manifests itself in practical care. And just notice a few things here about Boaz. He's so welcoming. He's so welcoming towards her. He's hospitable to an alien. He's not treating her as a foreigner, but instead, catch this, he treats her as family. Did you notice the language he uses here? He says to her, my daughter. This is a Moabite woman. This is shocking terminology. It's such a term of of warmth and just hospitality. Stick close to my young woman, he says. He's welcoming her into his fold, so to speak, adopting her into his family, so to speak. He has taken someone who feels so far off and he has graciously drawn her near, brought her in. And what practical care here? I mean, I mean it's, it's amazing, right? I've made sure the young men know not to touch you. There's not going to be any harassing, no abuse coming your way. I've made sure of that. I will protect you. And when you're thirsty, make sure you go, you drink from the water that you have not even drawn. Isn't that so generous? I mean, it's just filled with 
an invitation to come. He's so generous in his care. Again, let me just point out that this was a kindness and grace that was above and beyond what was normal and expected. This is, this is shocking. And Ruth understands that. She sees this so clearly. Look at what she says in verse 10. Then she fell on her face. This is her only response because she's so shocked by this. It's so amazing. This kind of grace is so remarkable. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. I, in other words, I don't deserve this. I, I know, I know I don't deserve this kind of kindness and grace from you. This is the heart, by the way. I, just pause here and underline this response. This is the heart of someone who truly understands amazing grace. This is the response of someone who gets it. And this is the heart of someone who, who gets it. And this should be the heart of us who get God's amazing grace towards us. I don't deserve this. I, am a, I was far off. I don't deserve to be brought near. I am a sinner. I have been an enemy against you. I have rebelled against you. And it's not that she was deserving. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, but Boaz answered her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. He is recognizing that this is a woman who has surrendered her life to God, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. She's taken refuge on the shadow. He realizes that she has converted. She's left her land. She's left her gods. She's left her people. And now she has identified herself through repentance and faith in the God of Israel. And whoever, listen, whoever turns and embraces the God of Israel will be rewarded and blessed. Boaz is able to point out that he is aware of the amazing kindness and care that she has shown to Naomi. He links it here to this understanding that she has surrendered to the God of Israel. So this, by the way, the kindness she has shown is simply an expression of her newfound faith in the Lord. And in verse 12, what we see is this, that he, Boaz himself, is an extension, a channel of God's care for Ruth. What's interesting is he kind of prays that the Lord would bless her without realizing that he will be the means through which the Lord will bless her. I wonder if we realize that sometimes we are the answer for the ask. When we're asking God, when we're praying for somebody else, that God would meet somebody's needs, I wonder if we realize that sometimes we're the very one that God is going to use to meet those needs. Maybe Boaz did realize, as time went on, that he was going to be the one to bless her. The Lord would use him in her life. Such a beautiful phrase. She had taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. She had trusted the Lord. And the Lord, this is, this is it. Listen, for those of you who have not yet trusted in the Lord, here's what you need to see. When you put your faith and trust in the Lord, he will take care of you. He will. It may not look like what you expect or what you want, but when it comes to your life and your eternity, He will take care of you. He will bless you. She did what she did, Ruth did, towards Naomi. Listen, not for the reward. That's what you need to be reminded of here. It wasn't to earn God's favor or God's grace. She did it because she loved the Lord. She did it because it was right and pleasing to Him. She did it because it was an expression of her love for God. We say this a lot. You choose obedience and you choose blessing. When you choose to follow the Lord and to obey Him, you are choosing the blessings of the Lord. And, and again, you show amazing grace like this when you know you've been shown amazing grace by God. Both Ruth and Boaz have a sense, I believe, of God's grace toward them. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says this, the real evidence of character and the ultimate test of spiritual maturity is not how someone reacts to the great, the famous, the rich, and the noble, but how that person has responded to the marginalized, the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler, and the needy. Not who you know, but the needy for whom you care. This is the real measure of men and women. 
it is certainly the real measure of those who serve Christ. This is Boaz. But let's ask this question. This is Boaz, but is this you? Is this you? Is this, is this your heart? Is this how you respond to those who are poor and needy? You say, oh, I'm not sure where to start. Well, in this unique season, let me just give you some ways to think about this. I want to encourage you to be a channel for God's grace, a channel of God's grace for those who are hurting and needy. And I think right now in this season of life, there are far more people around us than we realize who are truly hurting and needy in in different ways. But I'm going to give you some thoughts to consider. How can I be a channel of God's grace? First, consider your neighbor. Consider your neighbor. And I don't mean neighbor broadly or generally to a person that's just around you at any given moment. I mean your actual physical neighbor, the people who live beside you in your neighborhood. Consider them for a moment. I wonder, have you been thinking about how they may be doing, how they may be responding to this? Do you actually know how they're doing? I just want you to consider that God has put some people around you in your exact proximity where you live so that you can be a channel of God's grace towards them. And we must intentionally consider our neighbors. Secondly, contact your neighbor. Right? If we're thinking about our neighbors and we want to be a channel of God's grace, it makes sense that we must consider contacting them. When was the last time you spoke to your neighbor? I mean a real conversation. And, and yes, you can still have a real conversation six feet away. It's actually possible. But, but the problem is this. Most of us have been practicing self-isolation far longer than it's actually been imposed upon us. Many of us don't even know our neighbors' names. We don't know what they do for a living. Right? We, we couldn't remember the last time we had a meaningful conversation with them. And here's my encouragement to you. I, I'm going to encourage you, and I want to free you up to practice social distancing, but to contact your neighbor. You say, how can I do that? Well, I, I mean, the simplest way to do that is go knock on their door. Knock on their door, quickly run back six feet, wait for them to answer, and just simply ask some questions. Hey, how are you? I'm your neighbor. Maybe introduce yourself. I know it's been 10 years, but my name's Ian. It's nice to meet you. It's, it's good to consider our neighbors, to contact our neighbors. And, and here's the reason we're doing this, to thirdly do this, care for our neighbor. So I want to encourage you as you contact them, as you talk to them, to actually seek to intentionally care for them. Ask how they're doing. It's amazing right now how, how I think vulnerable people are. My wife, um, just this past week, had a conversation with our next door neighbor, and it was just, it seemed like it was going to be just a, a superficial conversation, and it quickly turned into a really deep, meaningful conversation about some of the deeper realities of life, just in an instant. And I just think people are primed right now, and, and people need care, whether they, they know it or not. People are, are lonely, they're hurting, they're confused, they're fearful, and loved ones, we have the answer for their problems. Simply begin by asking, how can I care for you? Is there anything physically, practically you need that I can do for you? And how about this? Ask them how you can pray for them. How you can actually pray for them. Tell them, we're going to be praying as a family for you. We'd love to pray for you. Would you mind, you can text me a prayer request. We'll just, we just want to lift you up to the Lord. But if there's anything practically we can do for you. And by the way, um, don't be afraid to share the hope that is within you. Don't be afraid to say, hey, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me encourage you in this season to go above and beyond what is normal and expected because you know that's what God has done for you. You know, what's interesting is we look closely at Boaz and we close off our message this morning. He looks an awful lot like somebody else we know, doesn't he? Boaz is godly. He's obedient to the law. He's filled with compassion and care. He welcomes strangers and the alien, the helpless and the needy. He's generous and kind beyond what is normal and expected. He happens to look an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Coincidence? I don't think so. You see, Boaz is pointing us towards Christ in more ways than one. He will be a great, 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 great ancestor of Jesus. But this man points us towards the person of Jesus Christ, the the one who is godly because he is God in flesh, the one who is perfectly obedient to the law of God, who fulfilled all righteousness, who loved God and neighbor perfectly with a heart of mercy and compassion. 
Jesus Christ, who was a friend of sinners, who cared for the marginalized and the hurting and the needy, and who invited all of those who were far off to draw near. And though, listen, we are all undeserving, he is generous and kind beyond, far beyond what is normal or expected. His amazing grace took him all the way to the cross where he, under the absolute control of God's sovereignty and providence, would show us astonishing compassion by dying in our place and paying for our sins so that we could know forgiveness and freedom and that we might know his astounding care as he pours out his spirit to us and as he satisfies us with his good and faithful presence. You see, through this story, we are beginning to see so much light in the darkness. God speaks to us the reassuring comfort and kindness of the gospel through this story. He reminds us that we were once lost and now we are found. And when we consider God's amazing grace in our lives, we ought to say with Ruth here in Verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's pray. Father, um, we are truly amazed by your grace. And God, uh, like Ruth towards Boaz, we confess we are undeserving. We confess, God, that we... God, at one time, um, we're not your servants. We were not your friends. We did not love you. God, instead, we were your enemies. We were rebels. We were so far away from you. And yet, God, in your loving kindness, because of your amazing grace, you came and you sought us. You brought us home through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God, we pray that as you have put your amazing grace on display in this story, that you would remind us of how you have put your amazing grace on display in our lives and through the gospel. We were once lost, but now we are found, and we give you all the praise and all of the glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.